The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Nice to see people tonight. Such a beautiful evening. Beautiful evening to be aware of our lives. And it's interesting how, you know, and each of us in our own ways <clears throat> practice some version of postponement as if there's a better time to land in our experience. And uh, so much of the path that the Buddha taught is, I mean, it really has two components. One is just getting the sense of the limitations of me, my mind, being in its thoughts about things. It's really, we don't realize it initially, but with some practice we realize how oppressive it is to be mostly just inhabiting my interpretation of my life. So living really isn't anything more than being identified with the ongoing story or interpretation of who I am, what's happening to me, what I like and don't like. We mostly live in that place and we mostly feel like something's missing and if we're fortunate we stumble upon these teachings and what do the teachings tell us? Well, that in a way there's a whole nother mode, way of being, not lost in thought. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. You know, how to acknowledge what we call like the ordinary mind, how to, how to acknowledge that being lost in thought, identified with this and with that, even when we're thinking about mindfulness practice or the Buddhist teachings, we're still lost in thought. And, you know, in this world of being lost in thought, there are more and less wholesome thoughts to be lost in, right? There are some thought streams that are quite toxic when we're identified or lost, caught up. And there are some thought streams that are relatively wholesome and beautiful, but still the mind is dependent, caught up in these thoughts. And there are, you know, there are telltale signs how we can catch this. There's one teaching in the tradition called the four distortions, sometimes translated as the four perversions. And it just starts out as sort of a perceptual distortion where things may be changing. Like, you know, this moment isn't set in stone. It's, it's quite alive. What we're seeing is alive. What we're hearing is alive. What we're thinking is alive with change. But I can imagine it's sort of set. Like, this is me. I'm at Common Ground. It's Sunday night. 
And that mental interpretation, that idea, has a solidity or a static quality to it. So one of the perceptual distortions is imagining things are permanent when in fact they're impermanent, they're changing. Another perceptual distortion is thinking things are satisfying when in fact they don't provide a lasting satisfaction. Whatever it might be, you know, we, oh, when I get home in bed, that idea, that image of me being in bed, it seems really satisfying. But it doesn't turn out to be satisfying in a lasting, permanent kind of way. Even getting what we want isn't satisfying. Because our actual experience is there's always more to get, more to become, never really ends. We never, desire is never uh, completely gratified. We've gratified a lot of desires, but it hasn't stopped desiring. And then another one of those distortions is assuming that like the thoughts I'm having are my thoughts in some kind of meaningful way taking things personally, when in fact it's not personal when we look more carefully. Or thinking something's beautiful, when it's not beautiful, it doesn't mean it's ugly, but this dichotomy between beautiful and ugly, it doesn't really hold up. You know, we could say, oh, it's a beautiful summer evening. But can we, is it really beautiful? I mean, what does that mean? It's neither beautiful nor ugly, it's just the way that it is. I mean, as language goes, it's okay to say it's a beautiful evening. But the evening itself isn't really beautiful, it's just the evening. Right? That duality, dividing things up between beautiful and ugly, it's a convention, it isn't an actuality. And so these are telltale signs, like dropping into the present moment. One of the, these four things will kind of give us a hint, like if it's feeling permanent, we're probably still, the mind is probably still identified with its thoughts about things. If it's feeling satisfying, oh, this is, this is going to save me, this is what I want then we're still in our thoughts about things. If it's seeming personal or beautiful or the opposite of these, you know, not beautiful, opposite of that, but it's some kind of fixed, then we're still in our thoughts. So there's a kind of open, humble quality of being in the present moment that we can get to know. Just like now, you know, if we just open to the experience of sitting here and whatever emotional quality there might be in your heart and mind right now, whatever the experience of sitting is, you can sense that there's no permanence in this present moment experiencing. It's a flow. Keeps moving, keeps changing. Is this moment like 
ultimately satisfying in any way? No. Doesn't mean it's bad. But it's not satisfying because we can't grab it and own it in any way that's satisfying. It's always changing, becoming something else. It's not really personal. Even if we're having kind of a personal thought that we wouldn't want anybody to know or something like that. But whatever it is, it's just, it's not really personal what's happening, what we're seeing, what we're thinking, what we're feeling in the body right now. It's lawful, like the sensations we're feeling sitting or the thoughts we're thinking. It's lawful that these thoughts are there because of the causes and conditions. It's not really personal or the sights we're seeing, the sounds we're hearing. I was thinking, you know, well, what would what would this topic be called? And it's the the basic point is, and I think it really sums up the Buddhist teachings that we're learning how to expose ourselves to reality, to the reality of the present moment, right? We're cultivating the stability of present moment awareness in order to expose the mind or expose the heart to the reality of the present moment because we found, and our teachers, our Dharma friends before us have found, that when we expose ourselves to reality, the mind, the the understanding of the heart and mind is transformed. And that's, you know, the bottom line is that the problem we keep running into is our understanding, our way of being, our way of relating, our way of understanding doesn't really, it kind of, our understanding is in the way of happiness. We think it's the world that's in the way of happiness, like I'm getting old, that's in the way of happiness, or my partner, they're the way that they are. That's in the way of my happiness. Or the world is the way that it is. That's in the way of my happiness. We always, the habit is to externalize the cause of our unhappiness. But when we're a little bit more honest, a little bit more careful studying our experience, we see that the problem is our understanding. We think the problem is the world doesn't match our understanding. But with practice, we see that our understanding doesn't line up with the world. So that's why we have to expose ourselves to the reality of the present moment. And what that does is it forces one's understanding gradually to come in line with reality. Normally, an ordinary human existence is we're trying to make reality it, massage it into our understanding. Like we have an idea of who I am, who you are, what's happening now, and we're trying to get reality to fit our conceptual understanding. And so we always end up with dukkha. Doesn't quite fit, doesn't quite work, it's stressful, it's uneasy. We're anxious and uh, upset because of this dissonance between our 
view our understanding and reality, the experience we're experiencing. And we can do this for a long time. The Buddha he had some really provocative teachings about how long we beings, we human beings, have been trying to find happiness by making reality look like what we think it should look like. Beginning less time. <laughs> that long. There's one particularly graphic image of a crow or some bird holding a piece of silk cloth. And once every hundred years, that crow flies over a mountain seven miles high, like Mount Everest is about that high, seven-mile base, right? And every hundred years, the crow flies over and drags the silk scarf over the top of the mountain for as long as it would take to wear down the mountain, a long time, Right. You know, and then lots of those eons. Right. So one eon is how long it takes to wear down the mountain. And then lots of those. So an incalculable incalc- amount of time. That's how long we've been chasing our tail. Trying, right, this conceiving, concocting, fabricating, constructing mind. This is the thinking mind. Right? And we think we're so smart, like even in a spiritual sense, like, oh, I know I'm suffering, right? I know I'm suffering. A lot, of you, a lot of you deluded people, you don't even realize how much suffering you're suffering, but I at least know, right? <laughs> and we draw the wrong conclusion, as I've been saying, that if only I get the world, my partner, my cat, my house, my body, the rest of the world, when I get it right, then my suffering will go away. Trying to get the world to fit our idea. And we're endlessly frustrated. A little example of this is uh, one of my teachers, this is a long time ago, but she was uh, one of the three-month teachers at IMS. And while she was doing that, she visited her aunt who was in her mid-90s and had gotten cancer or some terminal diagnosis, even though she was in her mid-90s, she walked in the hospital room and her aunt said to her, why me? Which, you know, is in a way understandable, but when you think about a 95-year-old person being surprised that, you know, that they'd be near the end of their life, that's kind of shocking. Right, because we should even at our whatever age we are now, we should know. Oh, yeah, it happens. It happens to twenty-year-olds and thirty-year-olds, and more so to fifty, sixty, seventy, eighty, ninety-year-olds. Right, and we don't, and we know that we don't know when it's going to happen. So there's uh, the story that like death is something that happens to other people. Sometimes we have the story that bad stuff is only happens to me, and sometimes we have the story bad stuff is what happens to other people. But one way or another, we have our story, and we're holding to it. And you know, we have a way of making it fit. Like we, 
don't pay attention to data that doesn't support our stories and we construct data so that our stories seem confirmed. And that's why it's stressful. The image the Buddha uses for dukkha is a wheel, like a wheel of a cart, but it's out of true. The axle doesn't quite fit. So it doesn't, the cart doesn't quite work very well. And that's kind of human existence when we don't have wisdom. And the beginning of wisdom means we're kind of getting the sense that, okay, the problem is misunderstanding. And the Buddha and my wise elders, they tell me that the resolution of misunderstanding isn't for me to figure out what I'm not understanding. The resolution to misunderstanding is to learn how to meet my life, to be intimate with what I'm feeling, to see clearly, to relax really, and open, and be gradually more and more real, intimate with experience. And that changes the mind's understanding. So instead of reflexively thinking things are permanent when they're not, thinking things are personal when they're not, thinking things, experience is satisfactory when it's not, things are beautiful when they're not. Basically, any concept the mind projects and clings to, the mind can, just by connecting, opening, learning how to be intimate, the mind does that less and less. There's an old teaching story, I think from China, but it goes sort of like this. You know, there's an old family, old couple, let's say. And uh, one day, you know, they're just struggling like farmers do. And one day, a, a beautiful stallion, wild stallion, just shows up and they somehow are able to corral it. And all the neighbors are saying, you are so lucky. You know, you're just getting by and all of a sudden you have this beautiful, healthy horse and, you know, you'll be able to tame it and use it to plow your fields and you could sell it, make a lot of money. Oh, you're so lucky. And this, you know, older couple, they were pretty wise and they said, who knows? Maybe so, maybe not. Who knows? And uh, as the days went by, their eldest... Uh, would get on the horse to try to tame it. And, of course, the wild horse threw the person, the child, off of the horse, and they broke their leg. Let's say it's the son, broke the leg. And all the neighbors were saying, oh, it's too bad. You need your son on the farm. He's broken his leg. How are you going to do your farming? Oh, too bad. And this wise couple says, who knows? Who knows? Maybe so, maybe not, who knows. And then a few days later, son's convalescing in the house with a broken leg, still have the stallion. But the army marches through town and takes away all the young men, but not their son because he's got a broken leg. And after the army leaves, all the neighbors come by and say, oh, you are so lucky not to, not to have your son dragged off to some faraway war, probably be to be killed. 
you are so lucky. And the wise couple says, who knows? Maybe so, maybe not. Who knows? And it goes on and on, the story. Like the wild stallion breaks down the corral and leaves. Oh, too bad. You lost your horse. That was going to be your saving grace. And they say, who knows? A few days later, the wild horse rides back, but now there are a bunch of horses following it. So now they have 20 horses. Oh, you're so lucky. Because it's like we want a conclusion. Like it's somehow we prefer knowing we're depressed, but at least being certain, okay, I'm depressed. Or I'm happy. You know, but we want certainty. We want a story we can believe in. It's interesting that what scares us more than anything else is knowing we don't know who we are. Like your experience right now, not your interpretation, but your direct, immediate experience of seeing, seeing is being known, hearing, hearing is being known, sensing sensation is being felt. See, there's no story. We don't need a story to have a real intimate presence with our life right now. I don't need any construction, any fabrication. I don't need to concoct something to be here and free. And I don't have to be afraid of a story. Yeah, You know, Mark, it is Sunday night, relatively speaking, you know, conventionally speaking. I am at what we call Kamagam meditation, you know. So there could be a story. I don't have to be, oh no, get away. I can't have a story, right? Because that would only be a story too, like stories are bad. Mental interpretation, mental dialogue, narration is bad. So it's not about whether there are thoughts or not. It's really what the mind is doing with those thoughts. Is it clinging to the thoughts as if it is me. So whatever story we tell, it will never be me or my life. Whatever you tell yourself. But our habit is to cling to what we tell ourselves. Grasp it. As if the story that we're saying is true, but a story, no matter what the story is, is only a story, a thought. Now, we can kind of get that intellectually, but when the mind sees that more deeply, it has the real flavor of liberation. When we realize, like the Buddha says, no matter how the mind conceives, reality will always be other. Reality isn't something that can be captured with a thought. Even the most profound or subtle or nuanced or expansive kind of thought. And thought could be a mental image, could be verbal, but whatever that mental construction fabrication is, that's all it is, is a mental fabrication. Not more, not less. Reality is much more simple and wild and unfixed, that's the important thing. And the interesting question, 
from the Buddhist teachings point of view, is it skillful for us as human beings, living beings, is it skillful for us to keep aligning over and over, moment by moment, as often as we can remember, is it helpful, skillful, and liberating to align right now, to align or to drop in or to relax back into this wild, unfixed, indeterminate reality of flow, right? Stuff coming and going. Not the mind, the heart, not being dependent on defining, naming, understanding what it is, but not afraid of words or concepts or interpretations, but not feeding on those interpretations or clinging to those interpretations. And one of the telltale signs is like when you're having an argument or a discussion, you know, you can have like an opinion, you can even have a strong opinion, but wisdom in the mind doesn't forget that's just a thought, it's just an opinion. Like I could ask Don, you know, are you happy? Did you have a good day? And we can answer that kind of ordinary question. Yeah, it was a pretty good day, or whatever. But we don't make that, we don't like need, it's like that's a momentary truth. Like in that moment, these are the words that came out of my mouth. Yeah, it was a pretty good day. Or, oh, it's a lousy day. I'm feeling a little depressed or I'm feeling really good. Sort of like uh, we name the moment, you know, it feels like this now, but then it's gone already because it's, it's a new reality, moment by moment. So this freedom that the Buddha points to, it's always here and now. And the problem, like the only problem we have to deal with is the mind, it's like, has an allegiance, you could even call it an addiction, but it has an allegiance to the meaning the thinking mind constructs, the imagining mind constructs. And so even when we realize that life isn't working very well for me, I'm afraid, I'm anxious, or whatever, we tend to try to solve the problems that we see by thinking and imagining. So it doesn't really resolve, and that's the endlessness of samsara. That's why it takes a lot of those eons of a crow carrying a piece of silk, dragging it across a seven-mile-high mountain, right? Because we keep addressing the problem in ways that reinforces the problem. We conceive of something, but whatever we conceive of is always other. Right? It, it never provides 
a resting place that we think we need. And by opening to the present moment, we're learning that there isn't anybody who needs a resting place. The image I was just teaching with Joseph Goldstein out at Spirit Rock in the middle of July, and um, he told a story, a teaching story. He tells a lot over the years, many years of his teaching, about somebody getting, jumping out of an airplane, maybe enjoying it initially until they realize they don't have a parachute, and then freaking out, freaking out, freaking out, freaking out until they realize there's no ground to hit. And it's kind of this, you know, initially we just think life is fun, and then we realize, no, 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 I want solid ground. I need solid ground. And then we realize it isn't a problem for things to be a free fall. There isn't any, we don't need ground. There isn't anybody who needs ground. And that's actually, I know it sounds a little out there, but that's actually what we're doing when we sit and meditate. I mean, you may think like, well, what does that have to do with being intimate with the breath coming in and being intimate with the breath going out? But we're really learning to be in this free fall of the present moment. Like, not the mind, not being dependent on any fixed notion. Like, even if I'm meditating correctly, not even needing to know that. Just letting things come and go. So when we use a technique like being with the body, bodily sensation, or being with the breath in the body, or being with hearing, we tend to use relatively concrete, neutral experiences, like being intimate with the body, being intimate with touch points in the body, like the buttocks on the cushion or chair or where the knees are touching or where the hands are touching or, the, like I said, the whole body together or specifically the movement of the breath in the body, feeling the belly rise, feeling the abdominal wall fall a little or feel that touching as the air goes in and out of the nostrils. But we tend to use these neutral experiences, but it isn't, there isn't anything mystical or special about these meditative anchors. They're just used, like if I'm wholly there with the breath, then the mind, the knowing mind, has to break the spell. It's addictive spell, being spellbound with my thoughts about things. Because I can't really be intimate with the in-breath and be obsessively thinking about this or that. So it's just a trick, this being connecting and sustaining awareness with meditative anchors, it's a trick to break the spell. Where we're always looking to our thoughts about things to provide safety, to provide the kind of structure of safe meaning. Like, at least I know who I am. I'm miserable, but at least I know who I am. Where the mind has defined things and that mental conceptual definition provides a semblance of ground, but it's always dissolving, so we've got to think it again. Different riff on what we thought the moment before. And then again, and then again, and then again. And that, that is really the definition of anxiety is 
the ongoingness, the repetitive, we're never done. That's why we say it's dukkha, because we're never done creating ground, because we can't really create ground. The very essence of nature or reality is change, as the Buddha says, anicca. Anicca dukkha anatta. These are the underlying characteristics. So when we come into the body, instead of being lost in thought, then we're in this realm of just feeling the physicality of breathing in and out. And one of the things we begin to notice, the more we have sustained present moment awareness with any aspect of the present moment, is the truth, the reality of change. That whatever we're aware of is a changing process. There is nothing static to it. And that's true whether we're listening to sound, opening to seeing, not what we're seeing, the concept, but just the visual field is always flowing, moving, changing. Touch is a river, is a river of change. The flow of sensation. This moment of sensation isn't the same as this moment of sensation and the next. And even something that feels like permanent, if I touch the lectern here and I feel the hardness and the smoothness of the wood, that direct immediacy of touching isn't solid, isn't fixed. It's changing. It's alive with change. Isn't, it isn't permanent in the way that we imagine. The idea that I'm touching the lectern creates the semblance of permanency. But that's not actually there in the touch. Sometimes when the mindfulness gets really continuous, the samadhi or the concentration deepens, we'll be feeling the body almost like a really light, tingly energy, like the whole body's just vibrating like it's not much of anything. And it can be surprising, like where did my body go? I mean, I'm 170 pounds or 165 pounds. Where is that weight? You know, and I've got solid bone and I got that stiff shoulder. Where is that all? Because it doesn't, and we're not like trying to miss it. It's just the mind is experiencing the body more on this underlying level of change. There may be the hardness, the stiffness in the shoulder, but it's alive with change. And when the mind is attuned to the more subtle reality of sensation, it notices that it's in motion. And when something's in motion, it's not much of anything. Right? A lot of people will come to teachers and they'll say, like especially on retreat, you know, My body disappeared. I felt like I was levitating. It's sort of this joke. But it's a a real experience. It's not that the body's levitating. It's that the mind, the sensitive, stable, clear mind, is experiencing the body in a more subtle way. It's like physicists will tell you. It's not just the body that's empty, mostly empty space, but any object is mostly empty space. You know, you break it down, you've got your cells, and then deeper level you have molecules, and eventually to atoms, and then 
the more you keep breaking things down, you've got these tiny particles and a lot of space between them. And when you look at any of the tiny particles, it just gets more and more space, less and less substance. There's not much there. And that's not just about theoretical physics, that's just experiential. When the mind is attentive in a continuous way, you'll see when the mind goes beyond the concept of the body, opens to the body directly, immediately, and sustains that so that it's really the mind is weaning itself off of the concept, its habit of how it interprets the body, into the more reality of the body, you'll be shocked. The body, no matter how you conceive it, the experience of the body is not like we conceive it. As one of my teachers says, it's always surprising when the mind, the stable, clear and stable mind, sees things as they are. It always surprises the mind. Because the mind is expecting to see, to experience, what it's always thought was there. And it's never that way. And it doesn't matter how much reading you've done about Buddhism. So you might have the right Buddhist answer, but it's a concept. And the reality, even if it somehow aligns with the concept you read in Buddhism, isn't the same as the concept. It's always shocking when we see the changing, unsatisfactory, impersonal nature of body, of sound, of sight, of thought, of emotion, or whatever. So it'd be nice to hear from the group tonight. We have about 15 minutes. And uh, I always like to remind people that you're just uh, strongly encouraged to stay to the end. Sometimes I know people need to get home, but we really ask people to commit to staying to 8.30 so that we uh, just are willing to hear each other and share from the wisdom of our own practice and the questions that come out of your practice. Yeah, so start us off and please say your name if you know, your first name if you don't mind. My name is Rhea and um, I guess I was wondering kind of what you were talking about when you're having like small talk with somebody like, oh, hey, how's your day going and stuff like that. And I find myself having more trouble, I guess, when I'm around people and they're talking about other people or like gossip and stuff like that and I'm just like at a loss because I don't want to engage in that activity but I also don't want to just like sit in the corner like or just like be completely silent and I it's just hard to like um I guess connect with people when I feel like there's not really anything to talk about yeah Well, one of the things, yeah, no, I I hear you, and things will change. You don't have to do it intentionally, but once people get interested in this practice, they start making different choices slowly over time. And you might, people who you deeply love and have a deep connection with, you may just find yourself spending less and less time with them, but it's not that you've stopped loving them, it's just spending time with them doesn't, seem helpful or useful for you or for them. And you'll just start making different choices. And it's useful. One of the places Common Ground exists, if you get interested in this practice, it's very important to cultivate friends who are also interested in the practice. 
Because in a very real way, we're going against the stream. We're cultivating qualities of the mind that are different. And you'll find ways to engage other people, like to do things together, like service projects, change the world. It needs some changing, (laughs) right? So to get engaged with social change, because that activity, and it can be quite small, like picking up trash or taking care of animals at the Animal Humane Society or addressing racial injustice or whatever it might be. But those kind of activities or raising a family together. I mean, so it could be anything. But those activities can be deeply satisfying and the way that just talking about stuff can be when there's more balance in the mind seen as being really not helping anybody. Just a waste of time. And so much of what goes down as wholesome, you know, hanging out together is really hollow in that way. Now, there's always going to be a little of it where we'll talk about the weather, but what we're really doing is saying, I love you, but it's not really socially appropriate to say it. So I'm going to say, what a nice day, you know, and you're going to say, yeah, you know. So there's, we don't want to pathologize small talk because a lot of it is just our particular cultural way of saying, it's really nice being here with you. I feel a lot of love right now and I want to hang out in this space for a few more minutes, so let's find something to do so we don't feel too awkward. you know. And so we fill it up with whatever, talking about sports or talking about a movie we saw. I see that more and more, and, it re- and it's really nice when we have Dharma friends because then we can actually say, you know, it's just really nice being here, and we don't really have to talk, you know. Yeah. Anything else you want to share? Yeah, thanks, Ria. Who would like to go next? Comments from your practice, like just the experience of dropping in or questions? Kermit, did you have your hand up? Yeah, thank you, Mark. Um, this is really good stuff. This is something that you really helped me with, and this relates to the idea of things flowing and changing. I would wake up early morning with um, you know, this early morning anxiety or depression, just gut-wrenching dread, and... You know, and then my mind would say, oh, that's because my life is not going this way and this should be different, blah, blah, blah. And there's a huge story that comes with it, and it would just be completely unbearable. Um, your advice was to just welcome that sensation in as a feeling and not label it or identify it. Just, just let it, let it flow and you find that it's it's not like a thing. It's just something that's moving, it's changing. It's a, it's an energy, and it, it does transform. It's not solid. And so that was yeah, really, yeah. A, really a breakthrough for me. So thank you. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Kermit. And that's, a, that's an important moment when we wake up in the morning because during the night when we're sleeping, we're not very mindful, obviously, And so a lot of the habit energies get to play themselves out, but there's no kind of wise presence 
to basically be, you know, in a kind way saying, is that really true? <laughs> you know, is it really helpful, what you're thinking, what you're feeling? So then when we wake up, it's like all of that has been activated. And it's a really important point to, like Kermit said, just said, to be with the direct, immediate experiencing of the feeling. Oh, it feels like this. It feels like this. Because if we we surprisingly try to protect ourselves by telling a story about why we're feeling what we're feeling. But that story reinfo- triggers, re-triggers the feeling. And the feeling re-triggers the story and then we're off to the races. Yeah, Thanks, Kermit. I'd like to go next. Yeah, Meski. Um, so it's really interesting to see some energies that move. Um, let's say depression or anxiety or whatever. Um, it's not most of the time my tendency to go there, but when it's a new feeling and it comes in a wave, really being surprised and also feeling heartbreak, not necessarily for me, it's like, wow, I'm really, really depressed. And I'm like, are you really depressed? Do you even know this is really... You just woke up and you were sad. But, you know, I, if I believe that, and I could see how much it could be believed because the energy is so real. It's like the world it just fell apart. I'm like, oh, wow. It's so very difficult to get out of that if you continually believe it. Yeah, Conti- that's uh, the thing, if you believe it. Yeah, it that, and, and again, the teaching today was amazing. <laughs> There's the same question on Wednesday. How do you not, how do you catch yourself not believing? I mean, you know, like sometimes, even, even when you know this spell of believing or thinking is there. Yeah. yeah, how do we practice not believing the stories that arise in the thinking mind? And... Earlier when Meski was talking, um, I thought part of what you were saying was really important that even people are quite wise. Meski's one of our teachers here. I don't know if people realize that. But even people with a lot of practice, momentum, a lot of wisdom, we, you know, we, in a way, we see greater range of emotionality, more depression, more anxiety, more fear, more hate, more lust, more greed, because we're not pretending we're somebody we're not. We're not, we're willing to be a human being, and human being has this amazing spectrum of emotion, right? And now because we're not pretending anymore. I mean, that's one of the positive things that come, comes from practice is where we realize how exhausting it is to pretend, so we stop pretending. And things just come and go, whatever emotions, whatever. And it's shocking sometimes how deep the sadness, how beautiful, big the love, how, you know, every conceivable emotion to the nth degree on steroids comes and goes. And like the point I think Meski's making is 
when that, because, you know, that the quality of emotion is to be like, it just feels so personal. The habit is, it's got to be personal because it feels, that's, it feels so poignant, so real, so rich, so big, so intense. And the key is really like the practice is, it comes down to the simple move. It's easy to say and not so easy to do, but basically the, the understanding that reality is never, ever anything more than something being known. So no matter how intense or real or personal a moment of experience appears to be, the reality, like this reality of this moment now, is something is being known. And it's never more than that or less than that. So sometimes, I had a conversation, this is a long time ago, one of our leaders here, her best friend and sister died suddenly in a car accident. And a couple hours after she found out, she called me and was really in a difficult place because it was her closest friend in her life and sister. And it was just like, boom, their vibrant relationship and gone. And uh, one of the things I ended up saying to her was, don't assume the heart can't be with the feeling. Because it seems like the feeling is so big that I have to do something. But we, we want to stay open like it can just be a very, very, very big feeling. And let's see what happens. We shouldn't presume the thought, this is going to kill me. I have to tighten up, stiffen up or something or tell myself. A st- Maybe the heart can feel this feeling. Just like let it move, like you were saying in your sharing. Did you have any other thoughts, Mesky? The beauty, right? We get confused by the idea of what's beautiful when it's just what it is. Like it's such a peaceful, beautiful sunset. But when we look at it with wisdom, we realize it's just what it is. I mean, it's not that beautiful. (laughs) But imagine that. But I mean, everything's like that. I mean, it's interesting, you know, when, like, you know, you're having a really nice time with your partner, your friend, or whatever. But just to go back, like, from a relative point of view, this is one of the best moments of my life. And then from a deeper point of view, and it's just what it is. It's just this moment being known, being felt. So it's it's sort of getting that in its essence, it's just the ordinariness of something being known. And it's not, it's sort of like saying not beautiful, it's sort of like not special. But thanks, Meski. We have time for one more comment. Any thoughts, questions? Like, yeah, Ruth, please. Yeah, um, Ruth, I, I'd be curious to hear your view on so listening to other people talking about waking up in the morning, you know, I used to practice in the tradition of Thich Nhat Hanh, and he has a lot of these mantras that I got into my mind. They're like prayers almost. And so every morning when I wake up, I just have this mantra that appears to me, which is waking up this morning, I smile 24 hours 
uh, lie before me. I vow to live deeply in every moment and look at all beings with eyes of compassion. And it's just like it comes to me like that. And I sometimes laugh at it because I don't even know how I feel in the morning. It's just like, it's almost like behavioral modification. And Ty's got like 30 of those. And so... They're called gatas. Gatas, gatas, yeah. And so I'm seeing the stark difference between training your mind to just trigger one of those, which is like behavioral modification. So it's mm-hmm. teaching me really to, to think in a certain way and to look at all beings with eyes of compassion. But it's also not allowing me to check in with myself mm-hmm. either. So. But you could come up with your own gata about checking in. Mm-hmm. You know, I wake up this morning willingly feeling what I'm feeling as a gift to all beings or something like that, you know? Yeah. To model fearlessness for all beings, to model curiosity for all beings. So you could come up with your own gatas just depends where your practice is and kind of where the edge is. Mm-hmm. So like okay. when Kermit was working with that, he might have had a little phrase that inspired him to do that work in the morning, in those first moments. Although I do say sometimes it is helpful to just have one of Ty's ones to just stick in there in the morning. If you don't really feel like looking at all beings with eyes of compassion, it's sort of like, yeah. you know. Because <laughs> re, um, reforming how we think that more therapeutic side of dharma practice is really an essential part of the path. We're both working on a relative and then a more subtle level all the time. Yeah. Thanks, Ruth. And thanks, everyone, for the great comments. Let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words, just enough time for a couple breaths together in silence. Okay, to put it all down. Really nice to be here together. Appreciate folks' willingness to come. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.